there are a few characters in the Bible that people of all walks of life and even different beliefs know about. Uh, regardless of whether they've ever darkened the doorway of a church uh, or ever cracked open a Bible or opened an app, since nobody really carries a, a physical Bible anymore, the lives these characters lived and the stories that are told about them, they transcend cultures, they transcend religion. And Jesus is, of course, the most prominent of those People who have no contact with church or faith know about Jesus. Uh, Moses would be another, that people just know the story. And another we can group into that category is a man named David. Uh, his rise from shepherd to king and his battle with the mighty giant Goliath uh, are stories that are known to just about anyone in Western civilization. We've heard of David. And this morning, we're starting a brand new series where we're going to talk about the life of King David and see what we can learn from his experiences and what we can learn from his example. And David's story be begins at about the 11th century before the time of Jesus. So the 11th century BC is when we're introduced to David's story. He was a lot of things, and he ended up being the king over the nation of Israel. But we're introduced to him as a boy, as a child. And one thing to note before we get into his life, one thing to note about his life and culture is that David lived in a very, 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 very violent time. In fact, it's really almost impossible for us to get our minds and our hearts around the kind of world that David grew up and led in, or that anyone lived in ancient times, not just David, and, and especially when it comes to ancient warfare. Uh, when it comes to ancient warfare, here's what we do today, and we can't help it. We glamorize it, we fictionalize it, we sanitize it, we romanticize it, we do all kinds of eyes to it, and Hollywood has helped us in that regard, right? I mean, with Braveheart, it went to another level, with Gladiator, it went to another level, and people start, like, like celebrating this ancient warfare, right? But even on Hollywood's best day and their best depiction that they can make, there's no way to take us into the world of ancient warfare because you have to smell it, you have to fear it, you have to live that. And it's something that most of us, fortunately, will never have to do in our lives. But even those that can get close to that and are those that are participating in modern warfare, they never get as close as the men and in some cases even the women of ancient times when it came to warfare and what that felt like. Because today our soldiers, they see it from a drone or they see it from a helicopter or from a jet. We see it through the lens of a camera. But in those days, you saw warfare over the edge of your own shield with your stomach in your throat. You know, in modern warfare, most of the time we kill from a distance. And there are those occasions where there's up close, but most of the time we kill from a distance. In ancient warfare, you killed at arm's length. You didn't have that opportunity to have a sniper who was, you know, 300 yards away and was, was taking the enemy out. Uh, you actually looked into the eyes of your opponent. You were so close and you saw fear. Perhaps you saw terror in their eyes. You saw savagery in them. Sometimes you saw the glazed look of someone who had drunk enough to give them the courage to participate in the battle or had been drugged enough uh, to give them the courage to scream and to yell and to try to kill you. And the worst thing you could possibly see in your opponent's eyes in ancient warfare was calm because then you were gazing into the eyes of a professional killer, a veteran. And unless you were a veteran of the shield wall as well, uh, the odds of you walking away alive were very, very, very low. Only after the battle was done would you know what your wounds were and where they were because the adrenaline rush was so great that only as it subsided and drained away did you know where you were wounded and the pain began. 
And you would have to try to figure out what was your blood and, and what was the blood of your opponent because you would be covered in blood, either yours or someone else's. And if it were yours and you were able to stop the bleeding, the chances are you would die from some sort of infection. In fact, in ancient times, men would often go to battle completely naked because although they didn't understand germs, they did understand this, that if a puncture wound uh, took some of your clothing into the wound, you would lose an egg, leg, you would lose an arm, you would lose your life. And if your brother to the left or to the right lost their courage and turned and ran and broke the shield wall, you would most certainly die on the battlefield. And before anyone could come and take your body and retrieve your body or bury you, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would be there to prey upon your flesh. Isn't this the greatest introduction to a sermon you've ever heard in your life? Um, <laughs> with that in mind, come with me to a battlefield. One that was like we just described, but we don't visualize it that way. 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Sokah in Judah and Azekah at Ephesdamim. These are the ones that when you had to read in Sunday school growing up, you didn't want to read those ones. That's that verse. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. And here's where the story gets familiar for a lot of people. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Yes, there was a bowling ball at the end of his spear. 15 pounds. This wasn't a throwing weapon, by the way. This javelin spear that he carried wasn't a throwing weapon. It was a thrusting weapon that he carried, a killing weapon. And Goliath, no doubt because of his height, uh, would stand in the second rank of, of the battle. That's where these warriors carrying these javelins and spears would stand in the second rank behind the shield wall, and they would reach over the shield wall, and they would attack the enemy and kill and kill and kill and kill. And his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. This had to be the most confident armor bearer in history, okay? He's walking in front of Goliath. He's like, yeah, what you going to do? I got this guy. And so Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel, and Saul was Israel's first king ever. More on that in a few minutes. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. This was sometimes how battles were decided in ancient times, that instead of that battlefield moment that I described earlier, both armies would send out a champion and they would agree that whoever lost, they would be subject to the other army at the end of that. So Goliath came out day after day after day, after day, for weeks. And Israel needed a champion to rise up and to face Goliath. And they looked to their king. And they looked to their king for two reasons. Number one, he was the king. That's who you're supposed to look to. 
And number two, he was Saul. And King Saul was the tallest man in Israel. When you're facing a giant, who do you get? Your tallest guy. Well, Saul was the tallest man in Israel when he was chosen as king. One of the reasons he was chosen, it says, the scripture says he was handsome and he was head and shoulders higher, taller than everyone else. Okay? He was handsome and he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. It was like Federico. Okay? So you, you have this guy that he's, he's the guy that obviously you're going to choose as the king. So when a giant walks into the valley and challenges the nation of Israel... The armies of Israel, you look for your tallest guy, and it was the king. And they had placed their hope in their king, as they should have done. And by placing their hope in their king, they waited for the king to come out of his tent and to challenge Goliath. But Saul was nowhere to be found. That's where their hope was. And this is where our story begins to intersect with this story from the Old Testament. Because here's what's true of you and what's true of me, and that is this. We almost always place our hope in what we trust. We place our hope in what we trust. It's just what we do. Trust and hope are two different things. If we trust something to succeed, to carry through, to get the job done, that's where we will put our hope. Okay? Hope follows trust. We place our hope in what we trust, in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. And when the person that we place our hope in disappoints us, a lot of the time the size of our hope becomes the size now of our disillusionment or maybe even the size of our anger. Certainly becomes the measure of our disappointment because the one that we trusted failed us and our hope was misfounded. That's why you and I have the potential in life uh, and everyone has that potential to resent your parents more than anyone else in life. It's the most easy place to find resentment because they're our entire world when we're little kids. There's no one else we put our hope in more than our parents. Your parents could make you so mad, but you were always polite to the neighbors, right? Which, of course, made your parents even madder. I mean, this is true of those of us who are parents, right? You have a son or a daughter that's driving you crazy, and when they're with their friends, they're so polite. And you're thinking, I knew that was in you. Why can't you do that at home, right? Uh, or somebody brings your son or daughter back, and they say, you are such a gen they were such a gentleman. She's such a lady. They helped with cleaning up after dinner without even being asked. And you look to make sure they brought the right kids home, you know? Um, but again, it's the nature of wherever we place our hope, that's where our trust is. Our trust founds it, and then we put our hope there. Um, it, that's who we depend on. So Saul, in the story of Goliath, is conspicuously in the background. He's not there. He's not going out to face Goliath. He's not responding to the challenge. He's in his tent. And his credibility is slipping away as each day passes with no response to the giant's challenge. And as his credibility waned, the army's hope died because they had placed their trust in Saul. They had placed their trust in their king, and their hope was therefore in him. And when he didn't respond, when he let them down, when that trust was broken, their hope died with that trust. Wherever we place our trust, that's where our hope is. Um, and here's something you need to understand when it comes to Israel and their current situation. This stalemate between the armies of Israel over here and the armies of the Philistines, it really illustrates the fact that God never really wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. God didn't want them to have a king. God wanted Israel to look to him to be the king. 
He wanted the people of Israel to look to him and place their trust and their hope in him because God knew, as we all know, that wherever you place your trust, that's where you will place your hope. And there's no better place for that to be founded than in God above. That's where it belongs. And God wanted Israel to place their hope in him. In fact, in the very beginning, about 400 years before this event took place, God established Israel as a theocracy. It was a theocracy. It was a God-led governing structure. Basically, a nation of laws that was administered by judges. That God would be the king, and God would give the law, and the judges would administer the law, and that's how the nation was to go. That's how God set it up. And this put Israel ahead of everyone else in the world by thousands and thousands of years. I mean, this was amazing because the model that they had seen, uh, the model they grew up with in Egypt, the model that everybody else around him was that every nation had a king or a pharaoh, but it was always a person. They just left Egypt. Egypt had a pharaoh. This is what you did. And so eventually, as they looked around, they decided with their newfound freedom that God had provided for them that they needed a king too. And, and isn't that the weakness of the church today as well? It wasn't just the Israelites, it's us today. We are weakest and we fail most profoundly when we look to our culture for guidance and direction instead of to God and his word. And that's what the Israelites were doing. They were looking around and saying, well, everybody else has a king. You know, how does that work when our kids come to us? Well, everybody else's mom and dad is letting them do it. It doesn't go over too well. But that's what the Israelites did to God. They have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king. We want one too. And they look to culture to dictate their trajectory. This is 1100 BC, and they complained to their leading authority, who was a prophet named Samuel. And here's what happened. This is just a few years really before the incident with Goliath now. Uh, here's what happened. When Samuel, who was the prophet, who was the go-to person, because there was no king at this point, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's, Israel's judges. Samuel appointed his sons into those positions of authority because Samuel knew that he didn't have many years left and he needed to replace himself. He needed somebody in leadership. So he replaced himself with his sons, but his sons did not follow in Samuel's footsteps. They turned to dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, they twisted justice for their own benefit, they were corrupt, and yet they were judges. And so whoever had the most money, the case always went their way. That's how it was under Samuel's sons. And so now we see in 1 Samuel 8, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money, they accepted bribes, perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. Great way for people to come and start talking to you, right? <laughs> Look, you're old. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've st stood in front of the mirror. Uh, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. All the cool kids have a king. All the cool nations have a king. We want a king. But here was what they had forgotten. God established Israel for a very, very specific purpose. And the purpose for which God established Israel went way beyond Israel. It went way beyond 1100 B.C. Many, many years before that, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless. Not just you, not just your family, not just your nation. I'm going to bless the entire world. One will come from you through which the entire world would be blessed. 
So God had a very, very specific purpose, a very specific agenda, uh, a, a mission for Israel. And God wanted Israel to be unlike any other nation so that in their success and in their wealth and in their prosperity and through all the things that would happen in Israel, the surrounding nations would look at Israel and say, who is your God? And they would not look to the king of Israel like, wow, they have a great leader. They would not credit the king of Israel with the success of Israel. They would look at them and say, wow, you have a great God. They would be forced to ask, who is this God? Who is this one-of-a-kind God that protects the borders of the land, that causes their crops to go, grow in abundance, that causes them to live long lives? Who is their God that blesses them in this way? And through the nation of Israel, God would, in fact, bless the world. And eventually, there would be a king, but only one king, the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The story continues. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. In other words, let the people know this isn't going to be as easy as you think, but if this is what you want, you got it. This isn't going to be as simple as they think. If you have a king, the king is going to tax you. He's going to take a percentage of your crops. He's going to take a percentage of your herds. He's going to draft your sons. Oh, I just said herds. We now own a cow. <laughs> How cool is that? Like, Suburban Chicago boy right here. I own a cow. That's crazy. Anyway, um, he's going to force your daughters to serve him. He's going to claim the best land from you. And yet, in spite all of the warnings, the elders insisted, okay, but we want a king. And here's something to think about. Some, something I am still kind of turning over in my mind. Uh, sometimes not everything I bring to you in a message is fully developed in my mind. I know that's a scary thought. But here's kind of a thought work in progress for you this morning, okay? God's greatest judgment on us is letting us have what we want. God's greatest judgment on us is letting us have what we want, what we think is best, to let our will be done instead of his perfect will being done. Because at the end of the day, God will show us the way, but we've got to walk in it. God will show us where to go, but we get to choose our direction. And if we insist that our way is the best way and we refuse to follow the path that God shows us, he's going to let us. And that's the greatest judgment we can face because that's a path that does not end well. The nation of Israel's insistence on getting their own way really set the stage for one of the most detailed narrative accounts in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible, but everything we have today. This is one of the most detailed narratives we find, and it set the stage for the story of King David, Israel's second king, but arguably, as we're going to see, Israel's greatest king. And he was Israel's greatest king, not because he was a perfect man or a perfect king. He wasn't close to either of those. He was arguably Israel's greatest king because, as we'll see, there was, and I say arguably because the Bible doesn't give us a top 10 kings list. You know, it doesn't give us a tier list ranking. Well, David was clearly an S tier and Saul was, you know, C tier and you have somewhere in between. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, but because there was something in David that was extraordinarily confident but there was also something in him that was extraordinarily humble as well. And it was that marriage that made David remarkable. 
Unlike the average king as well, David actually loved the law. Kings typically do not love laws. Kings love to be the law, but they don't love laws. In fact, when a king broke the law, they would often adjust the law to match what they did because the king's words were the final words. And yet throughout his reign, we discover that David actually loved the law even when the law condemned him. And instead of changing the law or adjusting the law or tweaking it, it's an incredible story. David allowed himself to be broken over God's law. And throughout the parts of the Bible that he wrote, he declares repeatedly how much he loves God's law. Because David believed in the fact that Israel's law was a law that God had given them. And that conviction, and this is a big takeaway for all of us, that conviction provided him with extraordinary clarity as a king. It kept him in balance. Throughout his imperfect reign, he was never confused about his true position. David was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. He was a placeholder. God was the true king of Israel. He never was confused about his limited role. And in spite of all of his popularity, in spite of his talent, in spite of his success, and in spite of the extraordinary power he wielded as the king of a nation, he was never, ever confused. David knew that God was God and he was not. That was never in doubt in David's mind. For most of us, that's not the case. Success causes the best of us to stumble. A little bit of success, the next thing you know, we are now sitting on the throne of our lives. A little bit of sales success, a little bit of family success, some parenting success, financial success, a bit of academic success, maybe in some hobby or talent, you get successful. And the next thing you know, we are sitting on the throne of our own lives. And once we are on the throne of our lives, we place our hope in us because we place our hope in the one we depend upon the most. And that's where things really begin to go sideways. David, the king of Israel, never made that mistake. In fact, we catch a glimpse of this extraordinary perspective when he was a 15-year-old shepherd boy trying to stay out of the way of his older brothers who fought for King Saul. So back to the story. 1 Samuel 17. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. So while this is going on, they're terrified at Goliath's proclamation and his challenge. 15-year-old David just got his learner's permit, right? He couldn't even take the chariot to the battlefield without an adult riding shotgun. Uh, 15-year-old David shows up with a care package from home, some meats and cheeses. It was like a charcuterie board. And, and like any curious... <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Where's Karen? You've ruined me. Uh, and, and like any curious young man, he makes his way to the front of the lines because something's going on. He can sense it. It's rippling through the ranks. And he hears Goliath's taunts, and he hears Goliath's speech, and it's the same speech that he gives twice a day, and it's been going on for over a month. And just like everyone else, it causes a response in David. But David doesn't respond just like everyone else. Instead of being dismayed, instead of being terrified, David is offended. He hears that Saul is looking for a champion to fight Goliath, and he begins to ask questions. And even the questions that David asks as a 15-year-old boy allow us to see that he saw with a clarity that no one else in Saul's army had. The text tells us that David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? <laughs> and these hardened men of war look at this teenage boy saying, why do you ask? I mean, what do you mean, what will be done? And by Remove this disgrace from Israel. We, we didn't really see it that way. What we've seen is a nine-foot-tall giant 
with extraordinary battle experience. Our king, who we expected to go out and fight this giant because he's our giant, is nowhere to be found. So we've been looking at this as purely a military endeavor and one we're not likely to win. Say that again, this disgrace from Israel. And then David says this in 1 Samuel 17, 26. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David is ticked off. Nobody asked that question. Nobody saw it that way. Pagan Philistine. That meant that Goliath was outside of God's covenant. That Goliath was outside of the protection of God. That Goliath and the Philistines were trying to take land from a nation, a land that had been promised by God to his people. Who does he think he is, and why in the world hasn't somebody done something about this already? Wow. 15-year-old kid. And the word gets back to King Saul that someone is actually talking about going down there and fighting the giant, so he summons him. There's somebody finally raised his hand and volunteered for what undoubtedly would be his last day on the planet, and so he calls David in. And when David walks in, he's immediately disappointed. He's no soldier. There's no scars. There's no wounds. There's nothing to indicate that he's ever been part of a shield wall before, and he discovers that David is a shepherd. Oh, boy. He's the younger brother of three of Saul's veteran soldiers. And Saul sits down and he dismisses David, but David's not having any of it. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. (laughs) If I was protecting sheep and a lion came, I would pick up a small sheep, toss it to the lion, and run the other direction. (laughs) (laughs) If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. And why isn't anyone else seeing this, by the way? For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Absolutely no confusion for David. None. He just sees it in a way that no one else saw it. And that's the kind of vision and insight that we have to have. If we're going to change this world for Jesus, we need to see things differently than the rest of the world sees them. If we're going to change this world for Jesus, we've got to see things differently than the rest of the world sees them. We need to see them not as the servant of Elisha did before, but after Elisha's prayer. That's how we need to see things. We need to pray that we have spiritual eyes to see things the way God sees them. David had extraordinary clarity. And and the clarity was simply this. An enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. Goliath isn't simply defying this army. Goliath is defying God. And David's assumption was this. And this assumption would stay with him his entire life. He reigned for 40 years as king, but even as a teenager... Somehow he had come up with this idea, this notion that he'd wrapped his life and his faith around that the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord doesn't need to fear even when there's something to be afraid of. If your hope is in the Lord, you don't need to fear even when there's something to be afraid of. And so he said, King Saul, pick me, choose me. Let me do what no man in your army is willing to do, Saul. King Saul, let me do what you as king are unwilling to do yourself. Okay, probably didn't say that last part, but he should have. The interesting thing is this. Later, David would become king, and as king, he would write. He was a poet. He was a psalmist. He wrote songs. And so we don't only have the narrative of this story. That's what's so fascinating about the story. We don't simply have what David did and what David said. Through the psalms, we get inside of his mind. 
We get inside of his emotions. We understand his heart. And later on, he would document this incredible perspective, and he would write these words in Psalm 25. Oh, Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. This was the attitude that God desired for the entire nation, and they just wouldn't stay there. They wouldn't remain there. They wanted a king, but in their second king, they found a man who understood the perspective that God wanted the entire nation to maintain. And in this king, we find someone who maintained a perspective that your heavenly father wants you to maintain and wants me to maintain throughout my life as well. He continues, do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. That's the heart of David. So back to the story. 15 years old, clear-eyed, knows what he's doing, confident, and yet in some strange way, humble. He makes his way down to the Valley of Elah, and we can only imagine what happened on both sides. As the Philistines recognized, it's a boy. It's a boy with no armor? Is this a joke? And no doubt the laughing broke out all along their battle lines as David walked onto the battlefield. Meanwhile, we can't imagine what the soldiers who are fighting for King Saul are thinking. It's a boy. It's a boy who's going to represent the armies of Israel. And Goliath has made a deal. If we lose, we have to become the servants of the Philistines. And King Saul has allowed a kid to represent us. So Goliath repeats his threats. David waits, and then he looks at Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And let me tell you what's about to happen, Goliath. I will strike you down, and then I will feed the carcasses of your army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. For the battle is the Lord's, and Goliath, he will deliver you into my hands. This kid's got some spunk. And then in one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, he kills Goliath. And he instantly became the most popular person in the nation of Israel. He is it. His face is on every billboard that you see. And he became the most feared man among the Philistines. And they turned and they ran, and the slaughter lasted all day long. The entire army was decimated. David had simply done what King Saul failed to do. Because David saw something that King Saul could not see. And this is how it is with those whose hope is in the Lord. They see clearly, they act confidently, but they walk humbly. They recognize, and here's the key, they recognize that they can't control outcomes. We spend our whole lives trying to control outcomes. But we can't because there's too many variables that are outside of our control. Men who walk humbly with God and women who walk humbly with God and students who walk humbly with God, they wake up every day and they realize, I can't control outcomes because there's too many variables that are outside of my purview. So instead, they lean the weight of their life against the one who has the whole world and all of the variables in his hands. And they declare with David every morning, I trust in you, God. All day long, I put my hope in you. I would love for everybody in just a second, to speak that out loud, because this is a powerful, powerful statement, and it takes us right to the epicenter of this entire story of the life of King David that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. So let's just say this together, okay? Everybody out loud. I trust in you, God, all day long. I put my hope in you.
That's powerful. Imagine waking up tomorrow and making that declaration before you even get out of bed. Imagine driving to work and there's things you're not looking forward to. There are things that you maybe are looking forward to. Imagine in the midst of your greatest success. When all eyes are on you and you are the smartest person in the room, in that moment you whisper under your breath what David must have whispered under his breath a thousand times. I trust in you, God. All day long, I put my hope in you. And in those moments when it looks like the world is turned against you and that Goliath will in fact take you down instead of the opposite, that you whisper under your breath, I trust in you, God. All day long, I put my hope in you. That was David, an imperfect man who never ever throughout his reign, even though he broke the law, he never turned his back on the law of God. When we fail, we shouldn't run from the law because the law just shows us where we fall short. It shows us our need for redemption. God's law points us to the foot of the cross. And it's there that we can truly find hope. You want to know how David responded when he blew it? How, when he messed up in a massive way, a way that there seemed to be no coming back from? Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. It's one thing to put your hope in God in the victories. It's one thing to try to remember to be humble when you have a lot of reasons to not be humble. But in every one of our lives, including David's, in every life there are those moments when we choose whether or not to keep our hope in ourselves. And then when you put your hope in you and the world falls apart, all you have left is loss. But when our trust is in the Lord, when our trust is in him and our hope is in him, when things don't go our way or when circumstances seem to be set against us, we can lean harder into God because all day long we put our hope in him. David, as we're going to discover, was in fact Israel's greatest king because as king he never confused himself with the king. His hope, even as king, was in the Lord. Let's keep our hope in Jesus. Let's pray. And as you bow your heads, as we close this morning, I want, to think, I want you to think for a moment about where you put your hope. Do you trust completely in God? Do you rely completely on God? When life gets hard, do you try harder or do you pray harder? And imagine what it would look like for you to 100% transfer your trust and your hope to God today. And I want to pray for you this morning, for those of you who say, you know what, I, I'm coming up short. I, I rely too much on myself and my own abilities, and I, I trust in me more than I trust in God, or I, I put my trust in, in, in my spouse, or I put my trust in my parents, or I put my trust in, in a friend. Whatever that looks like for you, your trust is somewhere other than where it needs to be. And I want to pray for you this morning. If you just acknowledge to God, God, I want to transfer my hope to you today. I want to give up control. I don't want it to be me or anyone else. I want it to be 100% you. Do you just lift your hand as a sign to God? That's my commitment today, God. I'm going to give you everything. Awesome. Hands all over the room. 
I want to pray for you this morning. God, as we close this message and we look at David's life and very imperfect life, lots of mistakes along the way, and God, we can identify with that. But God, the one thing he never wavered in was his trust and confidence in you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we try to navigate the twists and the turns and the chaos of this life. God, to keep our trust 100% in you. God, forgive us for those times where we've trusted in someone else, uh, an authority figure in our lives, or, or someone who's close to us, and we rely on them before we rely on you. Forgive us, especially for those times where we've kicked you out of the throne of our lives and we've sat there ourselves and said, God, I'm, I'm calling the shots. And God, I pray that you would help us to return to the foot of the cross and lay our lives down and say, Jesus, this is about you. My king who died for my sins, who rose again three days later, and grabbed victory from the jaws of defeat and now sits at the right hand of the Father and you're interceding for me. God, I pray that you would help me to never again leave that place of trust and hope in you. And let that be true of every one of us this morning. We thank you, God. Go with us today. Give us a great time as we do the food distribution today, as we meet needs in our community. I pray, God, that you would give us some incredible divine appointments today. Send people there specifically that need to meet with you. And let them find that hope and that place that they can put their trust in you today. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.